Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. Thank you all so much for being here. Those of you in the Zoom room right now and those here in our Beit Midrash live, it's great to have a hybrid model. You'll tell, how we, you'll tell us how we do with it of monitoring, engaging the room and engaging those here on Zoom. Um, and that is a part of our new global interconnected post-COVID world, if we're in a post-COVID world, I don't know. <laughs> um, so, but thank you for being here. I hope um, you've had the chance to engage with this a little bit, or if not this, then the book of Proverbs directly. Those of you in the office, there, there are, there's a box of these here. Um, and those over there, that's easily accessible through CCR Press or Amazon or whatever else. So um, I'm going to say a few words about Safer Michelet, and then I'm going to actually dive into a few particular verses um, a little bit more deeply, and then I'm going to open it up for questions and thoughts about that. But as usual, we should always start with the nigun. I don't see you singing, Alex. So friends, this was a really fun undertaking and I'm really grateful to CCR Press for the opportunity to have engaged in this. If you, uh, I, I, if I was to make one of my top hundred innovations I'd like to make in Jewish life is have the book of Proverbs read on a holiday. Just like on Shavuot, we just read the book of Ruth. And as we know on Pesach, we read Shir HaShirim and um, Kohelet on Sukkot and Jonah on Yom Kippur. Um, I think I'm missing one somewhere, but you all get the point. Um, that um, the book of Proverbs would be really fun to read. Maybe we shouldn't do it in shul because it would be way too long <laughs> and rabbis would lose their jobs. Um, but maybe there was like a post-Kiddish reading of Proverbs uh, because I think it's really wonderful. And if you are familiar with Tanakh, you will know that Tanakh is broken up um, the Hebrew scriptures are broken up as Torah, um, Ketuvim, excuse me, Nevi'im and Ketuvim. And um, we have our five books of Moses, and then we have our, our books of the prophets of Joshua and Judges and Shmuel and Kings and Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the 12 prophets. And then we have writings, these Ketuvim. And the first one is Psalms. That's the most well-known by Christians um, and probably by Jews as well. Um, Tehillim. And there's a lot to say about that. And then second comes Sefer Mishlei, right after Psalms, Proverbs. Right after that is a whole different genre of Eov, of Job, um, which is a narrative uh, dealing with theodicy, which is completely different from Psalms and Proverbs. Then we go to Song of Psalms, Ruth, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, Esther, Daniel. Oh, Esther. Esther, of course, is read on Purim. Um, Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, and then Divrei Hayamim, perhaps the least well-known chronicles. And there is a program called 929, where just like in Daf Yomi, people try to read a page of Talmud a day, 929 is trying to complete seven chapters of Tanakh um, a week. And that's also really fun if you've never read through all of Tanakh to kind of learn through that. And so what, what we've done here in this book is we have provided the whole JPS translate, uh, the whole JPS um, tr uh, translation of, of Proverbs and put the full Hebrew with vowels in there so that you can learn it. And then we've given, offered some commentary on each of uh, maybe one or two or three in each chapter. There are 31 chapters to Proverbs. The 31st, anyone know what's famous about the 31st? Many, yeah, please go ahead. Eshet Chayil, that's right, James got it. So that, that many of us on Friday night um, sing Eshet Chayil, which is the 31st chapter of Proverbs, which according to some, um, is an anti-feminist um, story because it is um, putting all of the work upon women. And according to some, it's a feminist story that's acknowledging all of the great things that women contribute to society. And according to the mystics, it's dealing with the Shekhinah, the, the feminine presence that we're actually engaging with um, 
you know, but that's, uh, <laughs> um, so that's the 31st chapter. And it's an anomaly from the other chapters where we're going to look at themes like human responsibility, righteousness and justice, natural morality, um, uh, closeness with the divine, know your soul, the value of work, holy skepticism, um, the sources of, of violence, the power of words, uh, rising before power, feeding your enemy on moral proximity, um, supporting the marginalized, a, a lot, a lot, a lot on poverty. And um, uh, and what's interesting here, uh, so, and actually, if you'll see in the introduction I listed, in, in when themes repeat themselves, um, where they emerge. So poverty shows up consistently throughout Proverbs. Also the theme of violence, of acting ethically in business, the power of our speech, um, how we walk in the world, eating, um, even choosing more vegetables than meat <laughs> shows up. Um, then there's all the obvious themes as Jews, like the vulnerable child and caring for the widow and protecting the righteous, the power of humility. You know, it, it really is the um, deepest book in Tanakh for the student of Musar. And that is, and part of that is, is that it's a very, um, at, at face value, it's a very boring book. Um, it's not like reading a narrative that has just countless layers of interpretation of a, of a beautiful story or novel. It, it's like little fortune cookies, you might say. And I don't say that to denigrate it, but um, some of the statements repeat themselves often. They often come off as very simple. Um, and, um, and yet that's the work of Musar, that in many ways, the work of intellectual life is, is to engage the complexity of life. In many ways, in many ways, the work of Musar is to of the spiritual ethical development movement is to integrate the simple more deeply into our lives, and so I think Proverbs is a part of that tradition, or maybe the source of that tradition, to ultimately take simple moral ideas and learn how to live them more profoundly. Um, now, traditionally, we say that Shlomo Hamelach is the author. King Solomon, the Malbim says he's referred at, he's referred to as three different ways in Proverbs. He's referred to as Shlomo. Um, he's referred to as, as Ben David, the son of David, son of King David. And he's referred to as Melech Israel, King of Israel. Um, now we also say traditionally, I'm kind of bracketing the tradition of academic Bible and, you know, different, you know, sourcings throughout history as to how this is understood. Um, but we generally say that King Solomon is the author of three works, Shir Hashirim, the Song of Songs, Kohelet, Ecclesiastes, and, um, and Proverbs. And there's a debate Talmudically around the order. Some think you start off idealistic. Um, you write your Proverbs or your song and you get older and you get cynical and then you write your Ecclesiastes. And some think the opposite that older age is a time for ideals as opposed to cynicism. Um, and that a beautiful poetry and love song is what makes more sense later in life. And it's a more complex, that a child is gonna write, a younger child is gonna write, a young adult is gonna write just simple ethical teachings, but, um, but, the, um, but a, a, a deep song um, um, what is something that could emerge later. So I'll leave that up to you as to what you vote for in terms of order, if you've engaged with all three. And um, allow me to share something that Bible scholar Robert Alter explains. So what we're dealing with here in terms of uh, Bible is wisdom literature. This is part of the wisdom literature tradition, right? Which means um, it's not a part of the faith tradition. It's not a part of the narrative tradition as much. This is a part of trying to convey in as simple a way as possible um, basic wisdom. So here's what Robert Alter writes. If there were in fact wisdom schools in ancient Israel, it is easy enough to imagine how the formulation of ethical and pragmatic principles in poetry helps students to memorize them. The line, cheating scales are the Lord's loathing and a true weightstone his pleasure, occurs several times here in Proverbs with minor variations. Unlike the sundry claims about the righteous and the wicked, it is unassailable as an ethical principle. One would hardly call it great poetry, but the poetic parallelism does service to inscribe the saying in memory with the aim of being a kind of ethical uh, prophylaxis. Should you ever be tempted to enhance, there's a prophylaxis, 
Should you ever be tempted to enhance your profits in a sale of goods by using a crooked scale or an underweight marked stone, this saying is meant to come to, uh, to mind and to dissuade you. So what Alter is pointing at here is um, that one of the spiritual practices in the, in the Musar tradition is repetition that we daven fervently, we pray fervently, we almost sing, we go into the forest or we do it alone at home. We, we take a pasuk, we take a line and we engage with it very deeply. And the idea, um, you might say it's kind of, I mean, it, it, you might say it's kind of Freudian, the idea of psychoanalysis that, that talking out helps you to get deeper into the psyche, deeper into the consciousness by, through speech. So too, that um, by, by speaking out, this uh, ethical teaching and repeating it over and over, we can go deeper into the realm of consciousness and into repetition. This is very different than a Maimonidean behavioral psychology that thinks that the more we just do things, we will come to learn them. The notion that actually speech has the power to, to shift our consciousness. Um, lots more to say about that. Okay, so um, in any case, so Alter is, is, is telling us that the goal was that we have memorized these verses and internalized them so deeply that when we are in a moment of moral temptation, that line will emerge in our heart. That line will emerge in our heart um, and give us clarity. And um, we're going to see a case in the Talmud where, um, where, that, where that gets used quite nicely. So before I share my screen with some sources, let me pause to see if anyone has any comments or questions or additions or disagreements. Just remember to unmute yourself. Um, we'll monitor the chat as well here. Okay, great. Great, thank you. Okay, so we're gonna share a screen and we're gonna start with one question and, and forgive me for going too deeply into it. I'm gonna go rather quickly through it. Um, it's just one that I think is, is um, on a perennial level uh, relevant and, uh, uh, um, and continuing to emerge in public discourse. So, no, we're not sharing yet. Okay, we're almost there. Oh, here we go, good. All right, so it is, do we rejoice at the downfall of our, of our enemies? This is one of the most famous um, ideas from Proverbs. And I wanna just look through because one of the things that happens in Proverbs is many contradictions. Of course, contradictions for, for, uh, in biblical criticism uh, tells you about multiple authors. Um, but a different way to engage with them is to try to parse out um, what we're trying to learn differently, what the author or authors are trying to um, teach us. So here's the first one. The first one says, When it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices. And when the wicked perish, there's jubilation. Okay, it's only natural. People are going to, um, people are going to rejoice when the enemy falls, right? Whether it be... Um, well, I don't want to say the sports team one doesn't like, because I think we're dealing with something a little bit more than that. Um, but let's say we're like the, um, you, you remember that iconic picture of Hillary Clinton and Obama in the war room, whatever you call that war room, when Osama bin Laden was killed. And then you remember people in the streets celebrating. Um, and what does it mean, you know, at a time of war victory to, to celebrate um, on, a, on an individual or collective level? Now, here's the contradiction. It says over here in chapter 24, Do not rejoice when your enemy falls and let your heart be glad when he, when he stumbles. Excuse me, and let, your, let not your heart be glad when he stumbles. So feel free to unmute yourself or speak in the room. How do you understand this contradiction? Well, if all people are God's children, how can you rejoice if they're killed? Great. So Eileen says, and we're going to see this in a moment, if everyone is created, but uh, Elohim in the image of God, everyone is the child of God, how can we rejoice when someone is killed? Okay, thank you for offering that. Yeah, please. This is the generalized wicked. Uh, as you eat the cash evil itself, where the second one, it's, it's your enemy. Love it. Love it. The, the, the ego and, yeah. Great, great. So James offers us that, that in the first one, it says Russia, it's an evil person. Or in the second one, it's Oyev, your enemy. Your enemy is not necessarily wicked, right? Um, 
you could, it's not hard to imagine someone who's your enemy, who is a decent person. You two just don't get along to say the least, right? Um, if we're, if we're honest with ourselves, we probably have a bunch of folks like that, that we just, we rubbed each other the wrong way, or they were defending their national interest or personal interest, and you were defending yours and they just clashed, right? It's not hard to imagine. Yes, please. Uh, yes, sorry. I oh, Sorry. I don't know Hebrew, so I cannot translate the Hebrew at all though, but Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Yes, Russia. Okay. Sorry, thank you. Um, uh, yes, yeah, so Russia is an evil person. Mm-hmm. So it mm-hmm. says people will rejoice when an evil person falls. And mm-hmm. Oyev is enemy. Um, the, you, you know, your 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 enemy. Okay, because um, this first one here says there is jubilation. It's not saying you go out. Ah, and- ah, Aglaia points to a second big difference. The first yeah. one is descriptive and the second is prescriptive. The first one says, this is what humans will naturally do. And Proverbs wants to validate that. Like we're human beings. It's only natural to want to celebrate when um, somebody wicked falls. Um, can we really change that about our nature? And as Aglaia says, the second one is prescriptive. It's saying, don't actively try to do it, right? Okay, great. So we have two answers so far. One is the descriptive versus prescriptive answer. The second is the Russia versus, oh, you have the wicked versus your enemy. Anyone else have a, have another one? Okay, so the first is, um, is collective. Um, the city rejoices. And the second um, is, is perhaps talking to the individual. So that's something to kind of unpack what it means to do as an individual and what does it mean to be a part of a community. Um, and that there's a lot to say about that. And, and maybe the last one I'd say is the first one says Rina and the second one says Tismach. The first one says, I translated it as jubilation. Um, I don't exactly know how to translate Rina in any more nuanced way. Maybe someone can offer us something. Rina, some sort of joy. We say Gila, Rina. We say it um, in, in Shever Brachot. So you're gonna say, yeah, at a wedding. Rina is a form of joy. And then we say Tismach. So we might want to unpack, like, is there a difference between these two types of joys, of these two types of kind of expression of, of happiness? What are you going to say? Oh, oh, very nice. Yeah, very nice. So, so good. So we have four differences. Is there anyone else that wants to offer something on the contradiction here? Great, then let's keep going. So it says, so Shmuel HaKatan plagiarizes. He plagiarizes Proverbs. And all he says in Pirkei Avot, I can't think of any other Pirkei Avot that's like this, correct me if I'm wrong, where the only thing that is said is quoting a verse. It says, Shmuel HaKatan says, and then he quotes Proverbs 24, as it says here, do not rejoice. It's almost like he's like, I have nothing to add. I just think that Pirkei Avot should also mention this really important idea. Um, And he doesn't try to jive it with the conflicting idea. He just brings this one right? He's like, okay, we see what it's like when certain populations go in the streets and rejoice when people are suffering, and we can't be anything like that. Um, Yes, we can provide a space for people to process. We can provide a space for private joy. Um, We can provide a space to affirm the positive that emerges for someone while the negative is dismantled, but we can't actually celebrate the individual who goes down, Um, you know, and yet like when I hear of a school shooting, which is uh, um, just so horrible and horrific and all too common, um, I admit that um, I feel nervous when I hear that the shooter is not found. And I feel some sense of relief when I hear the shooter has been captured or has themselves been shot. That doesn't mean I'm wishing for someone, violence upon someone, but I feel relief. And yet, how do we talk about that, focusing on the victims versus focusing on, um, on perpetrators? Okay, so now, yes, please. A quick question. Are there comments in the book of Proverbs where it gives a reason why we shouldn't rejoice that doesn't have to do with God's displeasure? I mean, certainly we don't want to do something that aggravates God, but are there other ways that people say, this is why it's improper to rejoice when the enemy or the wicked go down? Oh, that's so interesting. Um, I, I, I don't know. I'm curious if anyone else knows. Um, when I, 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 um, maybe there's another, um, maybe there's another biblical source for this idea of not rejoicing when the enemy, enemy falls, but I don't know of it off the top of my head. 
Um, we are going to look at some post-Tanakh sources now that will give some different explanations. So Russ, that's a great segue, that's a great segue into what we're going to head into now. So friends, what is the most common reason we say at Pesach Seder for why we drop a little bit of wine out of our cup? Feel free to unmute yourself or say it if you're in the room. Anyone remember? Why do we take 10 drops of wine or grape juice out of our Kiddush cup? The most common explanation, anyone? Is it the enemy's blood? Yes. Yeah. Okay, good. Yeah, I see you, Erwin, saying it over there. I think you're on mute, but I, but I think you were saying it. Uh, yes, exactly. That this is the, the Mitzrim, the Mitzrim who, um, who drowned, the Egyptians who were our oppressors. We also want to, we, we, have to, we have to reduce our rejoicing. So this is different, not only not rejoicing, but reducing our rejoicing. Here's what, it, and, and here's one of the sources typically given for it here in Sanhedrin. It says, in that hour, the ministering angels wished to utter the song of praise before HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And God rebuked them saying, my handiwork, the Egyptians is drowning in the sea. Would ye utter song before me? Right? So God, God's self gives plagues to them. God is not opposed to them being punished. But the idea of rejoicing while they're being punished, while they're drowning. And then to continue on this theme in Pesita de Rav Kahana, a little further, please. Um, it says, be joyous on your holiday. Joyous in, is written three times in reference to Sukkot. Be joyous on your holiday. And you will thus be joyous. Be joyous before the Lord, your, your God, seven days. However, regarding Pesach, joyousness is not even written once. Why is that? On Pesach, the grain is judged, and one does not know if this will be a productive year for the fields or not. It thus does not write joyousness. But here's another explanation for not writing joyousness in regards to Pesach is because of the depth of death of the Egyptians. We thus find that all seven days of Sukkot, we say Hallel, whereas on Pesach, we only say Hallel on the first day and it's, and it's night. Why? As Shmuel said, it's interesting they say as Shmuel said, as opposed to saying as Proverbs says, right? That they, they, right, because the Talmud doesn't just want to use verses um, they don't just want to use verses as their proof. They want to use rabbis because there, there are, uh, I mean, obviously there's exceptions to that, but you see, that's kind of an interesting. Do not rejoice when enemy falls. Yes, Eileen. Hi. Okay. So and number four, um, don't sing to the Lord while his creations yeah. are dying. Mm. He is the only one. He made them and he destroyed them. So therefore you're on a lesser plane mm. and to take joy mm -hmm. is um, a violation of his laws. Great, great. Thank you so much. Can um, I just jump in for a second? Yes, Aglaia, please jump in. Okay, no, just because um, that triggered something. <laughs> Sorry. The right. uh, reason why is because um, one of, this is going to sound really, really weird, but one of my things is that God makes paradoxes, right? Mm -hmm. If you, you're not looking at, okay, so from a human perspective, you're, you're down with the enemy going down, okay? However, though, if you look at things from, you know, God perspective, everything looks different. Mm -hmm. And so, like Eileen's saying, though, like, it's not, it's not the same thing when God's involved. Very nice. Changes everything. Like the whole perspective shifts once God gets. Like you look from a godly perspective. So very cool. Very cool to to take a human consciousness or a divine consciousness and how that form of, of human judgment versus divine judgment shape, uh, changes. Yes, James. Where if it's still wrong, you can argue like Abraham with 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 with, with right. by ten righteous people. Yes. So it's not absolute. You can. There's room to. Great, great. So James pushes back here also in, in quoting Abraham challenging God and saying that divine judgment and human judgment are not totally separate. Um, we do have to kind of engage in that. And in the next book in Tanakh, in, in the writings of Job, is very much along a similar theme. So, yeah, very interesting. So, lest we think this is all one-sided, let's look at this brachot. Rav Yehuda, the son of Rav Shimon ben Pazi, said, David, King David, composed 103 chapters of Psalms, and he did not say hallelujah until he saw the downfall of the wicked. As it says, let sinners cease out of the earth and let the wicked be no more. Bless the, the Lord, oh, oh my soul, hallelujah. Well, that sounds pretty much like King David's rejoicing, right? Hallelujah. Um, you know, maybe he's saying this privately in his room, but he knows, maybe he knows he's writing this for future generations, or maybe he's saying this publicly, right? But this sounds pretty much like, um, and King David is pretty much the, um, well, I mean, he's not really necessarily a moral model, because he's morally complex, but he's certainly uh, the most, you might say the most central player in Jewish tradition, 
it'd be easy to say Moses, but Moses be, becomes a little irrelevant beyond learning him uh, uh, later. David, the, the Mashiach comes from David. So David becomes the center of the Jewish tradition. And there's a lot of political, historical, political dimensions as to why that would be the case. But, and then he, it continues here in Tehillim. Ohave Adonai sinu ra. You who love the Lord hate evil. He preserves the souls of his pious ones. He saves them from the hand of the wicked. Here we see sinu ra. We are not moral relativists. Be clear that we should hate evil. And maybe part of hating evil is that we have to rejoice when evil loses. And so how do we do that? Then we get into the question, the qualitative question of, so how do we do that in a way where we hold our moral compass um, and not lose it and yet feel joyful when, when evil falls? Okay, a few more sources on this theme before we move on. This is one of the most famous um, Talmudic passages with Bruria. Bruria, one of the great Talmudic sages. She's married to Rebbe Meir, and that's important to know just for the, the context of this story. There's some boars in Rebbe Mayer's neighborhood who caused him great distress. Rebbe Mayer would pray that they would die. His wife, Bruria, said to him, what are you thinking? Why are you doing that? He responded, because it says sin will cease, right? He responded, does it say sinners? Sins is what it says, and the evil, not evildoers. Furthermore, go down to the end of the verse. The wicked will be no more. Since their sinning will stop, will there no longer be sinners? Rather, you should pray that they repent. Then they will be wicked no more. Rabbi Mayer prayed for mercy upon them and they repented. So here we see a famous case where Bruria is correcting her husband and teaching the famous adage, hate the sin, not the sinner, right? And so we might, if we believe in this, um, uh, you know, today in Arizona, Frank Atwood was executed. This was the second execution in the state of Arizona in, in a number of years. And, um, uh, and there's a lot to say about the death penalty. And there's a lot to say about hating the, the things wrong, the, the, the wrong things that um, someone in prison for life or on death row has done, and yet not hating the person. Um, so too, if you look at things going on in our world today, either politically or just take Russia, Ukraine, we think in our prayers, am I asking God to strike down the Russians? Am I asking God to stop pain upon the Ukrainians? Like, what are the words I'm choosing to use when I'm calling to God for justice? What are the words I'm using in front of my community or on my social media when I'm calling for justice and I'm calling for righteousness? Um, and I'm sure we'll have different approaches to that. So I only want to do um, one last bit on this theme. So the Meshachachma, I'm going to skip to the bottom, even though the whole thing is interesting. He quotes our Proverbs. And then if you go to the middle there, it says a superior person does not rejoice at their enemy's downfall, since such rejoicing is evil in the eyes of the Lord. Once again, like you said, uh, Russ, um, and one should hate that which is evil in the Lord's eyes. That is why it is not mentioned in connection to the Passover, the festival of Matzot, and he afflicted the Egyptians, but rather only that he took the Israelites out of Egypt. Now, here's his radical claim. However, there is no festival or holiday in Israel celebrating the downfall of enemies. Now, I'm sure you're all ready to raise your hands and say, what about this one? What are you going to say? Purim. Oh, Purim. Okay, good. So the Manos Halevi on Esther, chap, on verse chapter 9, verse 11, one of the, the, the more disturbing parts of the story, he asks, he asks here, why don't we celebrate Purim on the 13th of Adar when the miracle actually occurred? And his answer is because that's when the Gentiles died in the story. And we want to be clear that what we're celebrating is Jewish survival and not the death of our oppressors. Um, that, that's what the Manos Halevi says over there, which is a fascinating uh, explanation. Now, it would not be hard to, to suggest that some holidays are indeed celebrating uh, the downfall of enemies. Um, but certainly, I think we should move away from that if we were celebrating, even the modern holidays, if we were looking at Yom HaShoah, I don't hear people using that as kind of a well, let's not even get to Nazism. It's too complicated. <laughs> um, but, you know, let's say Yom Ha'atzma'utz, those who are celebrating Jewish nationalism or Jewish security, um, you know, use it. Or Yom Yerushalayim, Jerusalem Day. I reject the young Yeshiva Bachrim who go and taunt um, Arabs in the Jerusalem quarter um, to try to, um, inst you know, instigate and rile them up um, to, you know, increase conflict. And I think that we don't want to use our, our holidays representing even, even our survival, like, like Yom Yerushalayim, to, uh, to deepen, to ultimately deepen conflict. Okay, so it says here in Shemot, 
It says here in Shemot, so, so far we've said, maybe we shouldn't rejoice. But what about going the opposite way? Should we help them? Well, it says in Exodus, when you see the donkey of your enemy buckling under his burden and you feel like passing him by, you should help him to lighten his load. Ah, right. So James says, is this about the animal or about the enemy? That's a great question. Um, what, if I was giving an animal rights class, which I sometimes do, I would focus on the animal side of it and say, ah, the animal is so important that you should even help your enemy. Um, but I think that the the, the bigger shot is, the bigger um, literal read is that um, in a situation like this, we don't care who the person is in regards to helping. And the reason I say that is because in the Talmud, it brings this case. And here is, this is, this, you might find this troubling, but it says in the Talmud that if you, you get, you, so you, there's all these great moral dilemmas in philosophy. Maybe you've heard of the, of the trolley cart case, right? Or maybe, or, or, or pushing the guy off the bridge. There's these cases of like, of, of moral triage that um, in a, the, the Talmud offers its own moral dilemma. It says at the same moment, you see a guy having a problem with his donkey, who you love, and another guy having a problem with his donkey, who's your enemy, right? I don't know if this happens to you every day. It's not my typical day. I see two different people having trouble with the donkey, maybe one, but two, you know? And so um, it says, which one do you help? And the Talmud says you should help your enemy um, unload their donkey first. Why? To counter your Yetzirah. Your, your evil inclination will only lead you to want to help people you already love, not those you don't love yet. I find that troubling. Um, I, I would find it difficult to pass over someone I loved over them, but it's, um, I, I'll, use it, I'll, I'll, I'll use it as a Peter Singer idea, not one that maybe we want to represent as perfect truth, but one that can make us a little uncomfortable to feel a little bit challenged. Yes, Aglaia. Nope, nothing. Okay, good. So I'm going to skip over this next amazing source. I don't want to skip it, but um, we'll see if we can come back to it later, but in the interest of time. Okay, so we're just spending way too much time on this theme, but if you have thoughts on it in our conversation, um, we'll come back to it. So the next one I want to go to is how to answer a fool. This is another case of contradiction. And I'm sorry, I see now that the Hebrew printed wrong. If you have a Tanakh in front of you or the book, you can find it yourself. Um, so it says over here in chapter 26, literally right, the last contradiction was 10 chapters apart. This one is the next verse. It says, Shot lasus meteg lechamor. No, oh, hold on. Sorry. Sorry, start over. Um, chapter 26, verse 4 and 5. Al ta'an kesil keival alto pen tishva lo gamata. Ane kesil keival to pen yihiechacham be'inav. Now, so the first one says, don't answer a fool according to their foolishness, lest you be considered. You also be lest you also be considered like him. The second one says, "Answer a fool according to his foolishness, lest he be wise in his own eyes." So, what's the, what do you do? Answer the fool or don't answer the fool? Now, to be sure, it makes it a little easy here in that the verb is the same in both cases and the noun is the same. It's kasil. The fool is a kasil in both cases, and um, and it says, "Answer them." Now, this is different than tochacha. Tochacha means rebuke. And one position on rebuke is that we should only rebuke those who will actually listen to it. <laughs> if, if they won't listen to it, it's, it's actually not a mitzvah to give it. It's actually a mitzvah to withhold it. Now, there's a counter view that says you should still give it out of, out of your sake of your moral character or out of principle, even if it consequentially won't have the effect you want it to have. Um, but, but over here, so this is not tochah. This is not rebuking. This is answering. So think of a fool. Oh boy, I'm, I might get in trouble here um, by, by giving examples of who I think a fool is. Define it. Okay, let me give an example of a fool. Um, someone who is anti-science. Um, I would consider this to be a foolish um, idea. Someone who rejects empirical data. Um, who else would be someone who would be, who would be foolish? Um, anyone want to give an example? That's my first example. Anyone else want to offer an example of the paradigmatic or quintessential fool? Uh, oh, good. So James suggests someone who's completely lacking in self-consciousness or self-awareness. Yes, Russ, who, uh, who do you want to throw in there? Uh, you know, there's uh, the saying about um, psycho psychosis is doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result or Great. whatever. Great. So, 
My Great. favorite kind. Oh, sorry. Okay, my favorite kind. Someone who believes that they have it all figured out. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Great. Yeah. So, so I love both of those. Uh, Russ's is, is, is interesting because um, doing the same thing over and over, which doesn't lead to positive results, is, 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 is sometimes celebrated in American society as, look, this political candidate ran 10 times and lost, but then they won. They never gave up. They have grit. They have grit. So um, what's that? Yeah. Thomas Edison. Yeah. Say it again. We didn't fail 10,000 times. We found 10,000 ways not to make a light bulb. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So Thomas Edison's famous quote around uh, 10,000 ways not to Make a light bulb, right? So it's interesting. There's kind of a counter. Can, yeah, I Aline, throw yeah. in yeah. Um, Shakespeare uses the fool in King Lear mm. as the observer of the follies of other people. Mm. Oh, oh, excellent! Uh, by the way, when uh, if you can give me a head nod, when someone speaks in the room, can you hear them? Okay. Not so great. Okay, just just a little. Okay, so uh, so I'll try to repeat. So in Shakespeare's King Lear, Eileen says he uses fool to mean. The, the fool is actually the wise person, uh, and he sees the folly mm, of the mm, others. Uh, he comments on it. It's also a class commentary in Shakespeare. It's also yeah, because um, it's actually the um, the like lower class person who's the smart one, and all of these, um, especially Lear himself, they're all prideful and. Yeah. Very interesting. Very interesting. <laughs> Uh, thank you for that. Yeah, um, I, I, I happened to be reading a, a little bit of Marx yesterday, <laughs> and was <laughs> and, and and was thinking a little bit about the bourgeois and the proletariat and how he understands creativity and wisdom as it's connected to creativity. James, what were you going to throw in there? Well, the Oh, good. So, so James reminds us of Socrates that Socrates uh, says he doesn't know anything um, as as a philosopher, and that uh, everyone else is foolish because they, they know things. That's uh, my favorite. Kind they, of they think they know things. They think they know things. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so yeah, so good. Okay, excellent. So, um, so what do we do when we're approached by someone who we identify as a fool, and maybe? I know that feels like a little bit intense, uh, your accusatory judgmental language, but so uh, let, let's soften it slightly by saying they're saying something foolish. Maybe we're not prepared to label them a fool, right? But they're saying something totally foolish and they're not in a learning space of human, they're not in a classroom. Obviously a student says something foolish, you want to engage with them constructively, right? <laughs> right, Aglaia, right? But, um, but if, if this person actually is engaging aggressively or in a way that they are trying to have an influence rather than are trying to learn, what do we do? So do we answer them or not? Answer them. So, how do you want to say this? Sorry. No, please, please explain. My answer because there are different ways to answer them. Ah, okay, great. Great. So that could be our first answer. Is there are different ways to answer a glass? So how? So um. So how would you resolve the contradiction based upon different forms of answering? It depends. Um, it, it says according to their folly, you would actually have to gauge the situation according to the, you know, the tailoring it to the particular situation that you're mm, in. Mm. So, for instance, so don't answer. Sorry, this one's my favorite one. <laughs> Not answering them, you know, lest you, you know, become like them. Yeah. Different. You ha you have to gauge it. If I'm making sense, so just judge it based on the circumstances at that time, and keep in mind that you don't want to be just like them, but you don't also want to make them think that they're wise either. So. Oh, great, 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 awesome. So, yeah. So, I think one of the cases I would identify as. Oh, I I hope I don't upset people here. Um, as um as a fool would be, and I'll start by saying the obvious part: someone who's not not a thinking person. Now, let me state the part that might upset people more. Um, someone who's a complete ideology lines up perfectly with partisan politics. If someone's like, everything I believe happens to perfectly line up with Republican politics, happens to perfectly line up with Democratic politics, this would, in my view, be a fool because this is someone who actually is a non-thinking person. They simply buy into everything um, that um, an authority tells them or a political party tells them, whatever the case is. And so if you are an ideologue, you're not a thinking person, you just subscribe to whatever this authority person or this political party or this teacher tells you, then perhaps we can't answer them because we're not gonna change their view on, on Medicare or on, on war or on um, how to address poverty, right? But if this is a person who's not an ideologue, it's a person who's actually engaged in the realm of thought, 
They're actually thinking about issues. Yes, they might mostly fall out on one side or another politically or one side or another religiously, but they're still engaged in critical thought. It, 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 um, um, then, um, then maybe we should consider answering them. Yes, yes, Kaney. Oh, yes, you're on mute still. All good, all good. Yeah, I, I've been taking this conversation for the last 10 or 15 minutes um, almost the same way in my mind. And um, you mentioned uh, the death penalty, and I think it's very re relevant to that. You don't hate the person. What you do is you put your energy into um, improving that person. Mm -hmm. that's, that's what our task is, not to kill them, not to get rid of them, but to 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 improve him mm. um, so that he can evolve, he can develop more as a person, um, whether that's in a prison cell or wherever. This to me is um, is again taking people where they are. So you define a fool any way you want to, but that fool or that person is on a a particular level, you may be here. If you keep talking and doing things up here, there's that distance that cannot be uh, bridged. But if you go where this person is, talk that person's language, then you can both um, rise. And I think politically we're finding out that that's true. Um, if you take someone who's a non-vaxxer or someone who doesn't believe in democracy or or what, whatever topic it is. Um, if you keep talking, well, this is what's true. This is, this is what you want to believe. There's a gap and we can never bridge that gap. But if you go down and you say, why do you believe that? Mm. What is important in your life? And then you start talking to that person. Both of you can raise your levels. Thank you. Thank you. And th well, that's a good segue into another distinction in these verses. If you look at the end of these, thank you, Janie. If you look at the end of these, the first proverb is about you, what will happen to you. The second is about them. Why should you not answer them? Lest you also be like them, right? Your concern here is that they might negatively influence you, right? That if you engage with this community or individual, uh, community of fools or individual fool, you feel that it might influence you. You're, gonna, you're the agreeable type, you're conflict averse. And by spending time with them, it's going to lead you to, um, uh, yeah, it's going to lead you to ultimately um, be affected. Um, but the second one is about them, lest they be wise in their own eyes. By being in your presence and you not answering them, they might come to think you agree. Um, and, um, um, and, and that might have dangerous consequences, right? When do, are we complicit if somebody shares foolishness to us and we don't um, speak back when, um, because we have uh, been silent in the face of hate rhetoric, we have been silent in, um, in the presence of, of dangerous lies in a way that may cause, cause harm. Now, um, okay, I wanna move on, but I wanna quote one thing from this uh, Talmudic passage, how the, the, the rabbis of the Talmud resolve this. I, it's not the most interesting answer, but it is an answer. Um, they say here, if I highlight it, can you see that? Okay. Can you see that if I highlight that? Okay, good. So it, they, their answer is how do you resolve it? There is no difficulty for one refers to matters of Torah and the other refers to ordinary matters. So, um, um, and so uh, we can see a distinction here as to when we would uh, want to intervene and what's what's ultimately at stake. Now, I want to look at this Talmudic last source here, uh, and the reason I want to look at this this great Talmudic passage from Bava Metzia is because of how the rabbis in this justice case use proverbs, and then we're going to open it up for for conversation. Okay, Rabbi Barbarchana, excuse me, Rabbi Barbarchanan had a keg of wine broken by porters. This is in the workplace, right? You've seen this one, right? He took their garments, right? They broke his stuff. The, the employees broke the employer's stuff. So he took their garments. They, they went and told Rav, right? They went, like, uh, like, like went to their rabbi. 
Rav said to Rabbi Barbar Khanan, give them back their garments. He sides with the employees. He asked Rav, is that the law? Dina Hachi? He says, Dina Hachi, is that the law? Rav answers him, yes. And he quotes Proverbs, so that you go on the path of the good people. So he gave him back their garments, right? Oh, well, the days when people ask business, business ethics questions to rabbis, um, and actually they listened. Wow, that would be a wonderful thing. Um, they said to Rav, we are poor people and we labor the entire day. We're starving and have nothing to eat. Rav said to Rabbi Barbar Khanan, pay them their fee. He sides with the employees again. He asked Rav, is that the law, Dina Hachi? He answers them, yes. And he quotes a different proverb, sadikim tishmor, the ways and keep the ways of the righteous. Okay, I'm going to end this, the, the, the share. So, um, so this is very interesting. And um, um, so what do you make of the use of Proverbs in this Talmudic passage? Uh, I, I'd love to hear if anyone wants to, wants to unpack anything that jumps out to them here. Original yes. labor law. Ah, yeah, oh, yeah. Early labor law. To be sure, the Torah has labor law like th- over three thousand years before America in regards to a day off. Everybody gets the sh- the Sabbath off, right? And that's like a hundred years old in America. The idea of a day off. Yeah. Equitable. Also equitable. The yeah. People worked. The people worked, right? So they deserve their pay. They deserve their pay. And if I remember correctly, you had to pay them before the end of the day. That was right. They have to pay them for the end of the day, according to the biblical law. And the Ramban says there that he thinks they'll literally die. They're hand to mouth. If you don't feed them by the end of the day, they're not going to be able to afford their food. Um, and uh, my manipulator survived. So um, I actually ju- um, just um, last week wrote something on that um, in regards to um, how there are some people, unfortunately, in the Jewish community who think that we need to we we need not follow the same ethical labor practices when it comes to Gentiles as we do with Jews. Um, and unfortunately, there are a few sources that they can point to to justify such a claim. And so we, I just wrote a piece this last week. Uh, backing up the argument as to why that's the wrong approach as it comes to ball tolling, um, d- uh, delaying wages uh, and not dealing just with wages. Anyways, so here, w- what I think is interesting um, here is that if there was a verse for the re- for the Talmud to have pointed to, for Rav to have pointed to, that actually said it was the, uh, the question, Dina Hachi, that it actually was the din, it actually was the law, he would have used it. But there wasn't a verse to point to. You don't give Pesach Kalacha. You don't give Jewish legal rulings based upon Proverbs. Um, but they do because it, it's a meta-ethical, it's a meta-halachic principle that they're ultimately bringing here. That actually what we want to do as Jews is not just follow the letter of the law, but go lifni din, and actually go tovim, go on the path of good people and go tishmor, keep the ways of righteous people. The question that Christians say, what would Jesus do? Or that Jews talk about is halachta bidrachav, we should emulate the divine, does not just say like, what do I technically have to do? But what would um, what would a righteous person do in, in such a case? And I think that that's what Proverbs is pushing us to do, is to think think beyond and think um, if I if I wish to live a, a righteous life, how can I go beyond? Yeah, James. Yes, great. So James affirms based on Hillel that this is also ultimately what what what, it, uh, what it's all about. So let me pause here. Um, we've thrown a bunch of things out and. Obviously, we can't go line by line through Proverbs, but we've taken a few different themes here as it as it relates to the contradiction of celebrating the downfall of enemies, as it looks to how do we answer fools and the contradiction there. And and lastly, how in the halachic tradition, how Proverbs was was all, was used as well as an authoritative source. But I'd love to pause now and hear questions or thoughts um, or commentary or disagreements on any on any of this or beyond or thoughts you've had on Proverbs when, when studying it. Rep. Shmuley? Yes. Uh, Proverbs tells us what not to do when someone breaks something of yours. Does it tell us the proper thing to do? Do you mean based on this last source? Yes. Right. So. Um, you, you don't withhold something. You don't punish them because they broke something of yours. So, right. So you say, uh, like, what's the employee's obligation? No, the person who's um, who's been offended, who's lost something. Yeah. 
We know what they shouldn't do. Right. Don't do tit for tat. And is there an appropriate response? Oh, that, that's very interesting. Oh, now I see what you're saying, right? We know that you shouldn't cause damage or loss to the employee engaged in negligence or, or accident, if not negligence. Um, and yet, how should you justly resolve a case like that? Um, that's an interesting question, and I don't know the answer. Um, I would have to look into that. So thank you for asking that. Um, because certainly, um, you know, I mean, I, I mean, my, my strong hunch here is that that's kind of part of the job. Accidents happen at the job, and there should be no loss to the worker. And if the worker is irresponsible enough that this keeps happening, you fire them, Right. Um, but, and if they make a one-time mistake, then you look past it. Um, you know, but, um, um, and I think that's kind of implied by the text here. Um, but, uh, but that's a good question, Russ, to be continued on that. Or hi, Erwin. Yeah. On, on how to answer, how to uh, engage with a fool or answer a fool. I think of, uh, the famous interaction between Hillel and, uh, the fool essentially said, tell me, um, all about the Torah while standing on one foot. Um, yes, exactly. And the lesson from that for me is it's not so much, there's different ways of, of answering a fool mm. or engaging with a fool. What Hitler did in that case was to confront the person with his own foolishness um, because the person was doing something hateful to him. He was making fun of him. Mm. Um, so he's saying, you know, what is hateful to you, don't do to another person, was right on the mark in terms of the transaction that was happening between them, which the other person could see and then went on to, uh, uh, to study Torah. Um, so it isn't so much, you know, you can also answer a fool in a way which is at their own level. You know, mm. they yell at you, you yell at them, then you're yes. at their level and it gets nowhere. But if, Good. You, if, if you do it in a way that actually brings the conversation to their foolishness, uh, that seems like a good way to answer. Okay, Erwin, so, so what do we do? So I love that. And what do we do today with the assumption that there are no such thing as private conversations anymore? Every conversation is a public one. And so let's say you're responding to a hateful tweet or not hateful is too strong, a foolish tweet. Let's say you're responding to someone in a, in a, classroom setting or a group setting, or there's a few people there. You don't know if it's recorded or not. So the, the, the assumption is, yes, if the person is alone, answer them within the context of their own foolishness. Um, uh, but what, what about the case? Thank you, Rabbi Wasserman, for joining us. Thank you so much. Um, but what about the case where, where private conversations are now public conversations? How, would you, how, how does that change things for you? I, I, it doesn't change it at all, I think. It uh, just, uh, the, the publicness now, but the, the social media just amplifies the interaction. Mm, mm. Um, and you can answer with a, 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 um, a revealing question yep. um, or comment, as Hillel did. Right. Um, but you bring it to the level of what's the nature of your foolishness rather great, than great. Uh, getting into an argument about it. Great. Also, like, I wonder, again, I see two other hands just went up. I, I wonder also, like, where do we provide context that someone is not um, a fool? Because a fool feels like a moral category, not just an intellectual category. Mm -hmm. uh, imagine a person who gropes, gro you know, emerges in a village, um, you know, uh, in a village where they just didn't have access to education. Imagine a child who asks a foolish question. Is the child a fool? Um, you know, imagine a person who um, has... Um, Dementia is a person. Do we label someone with dementia a fool? Um, and so, how do we think about someone who actually doesn't have capacity, capacity um, intellectual capacity? Um, and so, and how do we respond to them? So, so we've been thinking about fool as a moral category of someone who is just uh, misguided morally, and how we're going to have to kind of reach into their context. But what about the fool who simply can't understand? Now that goes back to Pesach Seder, right? About the, the simple one, the wicked one, the righteous one, who am I missing? The one who can't even ask, right? So who's the fool there? Is it the simple one? Is the one who can't ask? I don't know. Who's, the, who's ultimately the fool? The wicked one? Um, so, so who do I think of as, as, the, as the quintessential fool? And forgive me again if I offend anyone, but it's, it, it's the proselytizer in the street. Who comes over to you and says, I want to convince you that Jesus Christ is your God, because I have a verse in Isaiah that is a, that proves it to you. 
right? This person is completely convinced of the theological proof and they want to use it to convince you in the street um, of that of, of that truth and, uh, and engage in a way that has historical violence connected to it. And it also distorts the text, right? Now I'm always torn. Like, do I just walk past and say, have a good day? Do I, do I stop and debate this person? Probably knowing more about the book of Isaiah than them. Maybe not. Um, you know, <laughs> um, what if somebody sees me walking by? Are they going to think, oh, I just saw this guy with a keeper walking by and he didn't respond to that guy. Does he agree? Right. And so that's one of the cases in the public sphere that is that is surprising still happening today. I, I sometimes in, in coffee shops where that happens. OK, I saw Barbara's hand go up um, and then I see we have uh, Christo in the chat. Is there a question? Just a comment. Okay. okay. Hi, Barbara. Hi. I just think that I keep thinking every time we talk about the the foolishness that it's 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 opportunities to teach. Mm. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Barbara. Um, it is opportunities to teach, and so we should be slow to label someone in the category of fool who we should not answer. Um, maybe, maybe part of the verse is, um, it, the verse contradiction is pushing us that, okay, like the one category of fool is the one you've never actually taken the time, as Barbara says, to try to teach, try to engage with, try to learn with. And the other is the one that you've actually invested some time, you know, and you need to invest in your energies in some other directions as well. Yeah, Barbara, thank you. Hi, Glea. Yeah. Hi, Glea. All right. Okay. Can I just throw in here as, I don't know if anybody else in here teaches, but, um, I have community college students in the middle of Louisiana. Okay, so if you're talking back, okay, forgive me, but anti-vaccine, all of that, I had to listen to it. Um, what I did was um, usually what I, the only thing I can do is read the emotions of the class, even if it's just an online class, read the emotions of the situation. Um, I don't know if that helps with talking about teaching moments, but reading the emotions of the situation has at least like gotten me through. Okay. If I cannot listen to another minute of people wanting to talk only about a certain person who lost an election in 2020, if I can't take listening to it anymore, I'll put three minutes on the clock. <laughs> yeah. You got to get it off your chest. But um, uh, I will have some, I will say that I have had some su success with, you know, getting through to fools, if you must, um, mm -hmm. when it's, I let them talk, if that makes sense. And I just ask them questions and I say as little as possible and I let them just say, and then I'll just ask them a question and then it just makes it sound like, wait a minute, I don't know that what I learned and understood about vaccines basically being, you know, is that necessarily true. That's all. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Okay, before we conclude, anyone we haven't heard from yet, Rabbi Zimit or Alex um, or Toby or Eddie or Cody, anyone else want to share who we haven't heard from yet? I'm wondering if there's any one lesson you learned or thing you came away with in the process of writing the book. Uh, okay, Cody asks, thank you, if there's any lesson or anything I learned in the process of, of, uh, of writing this book. Um, and yeah, I, I very much appreciate you sharing that. Um, and I hope you'll all engage with, with, um, the book of Proverbs, whether it's through my commentary or not. Um, because I think that, um, there's a lot of nuance in each verse and it's easy to overlook that given the repetition and given the simplicity. But I think what I ultimately came away with was counting, counting the number of times that themes emerge in the text, uh, got a sense of prioritization. And kind of a rebuilding of my confidence. Yes, we have like some disturbing things in Tanakh, but rebuilding my confidence in many ways to like the value orientation that Tanakh generally has, which is standing up for the vulnerable um, over and over. And that's most certainly is a consistent theme in Proverbs. And there was very little in here. Uh, I think I can only think of one off the top of my head that tops that talks about. Uh, not sparing the rod upon a child uh, as I can only think of one that I explicitly disagreed with, you know, because I disagree with, you know, corporal punishment um, of, uh, you know, any kind of physical punishment on children, but that's a very new idea. I mean, even spanking in America is, <laughs> is very, you know, is only recently looked down upon, um, you know, but um, uh, so I certainly don't hold it against the book of Proverbs to, you know, to, to, uh, to support, you know, using a rod. Um, but I do openly kind of condemn that 
you know, uh, uh, condemn that use. And so by and large, um, I think that the main thing I took away was, was, wow, like we're a part of a Tanakh tradition that is complicated and messy and needs a lot of interpretation, but that the general orientation is one to really be proud of, of one that pushes up to, pushes us to deepen our moral reasoning, pushes us to deepen our sense of compassion, pushes us to do more to help those who need help. Thank you all so much for joining today. And I hope to have many more opportunities to learn with you in the coming, uh, in the coming days. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Beit Midrash podcast. Remember that you can join our email list at valleybaitmidrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybaitmidrash.org slash donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.